The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 5. In John 5 through 7, you have a section of Scripture that's kind of unusual. This section here uh, is a section which uh, you begin to see these reservations about Jesus arise among the people and hesitations about him, because the more he revealed about himself, the scarier it was for them, because he had, uh, he, when he simply compared himself to the Father in the simplest kind of way, not in fact, not in a way that you would think he was saying he is equal, they thought he was committing blasphemy because he was making himself out to be God. The fact is, he is like God, and he, he can uh, function like God, but he never functions independently of God. He only does what the Father, what he sees the Father doing. We talked about this a little bit last week, that in the family economy, the children, especially the sons, would follow the pathway of their father in the, whatever his profession or trade was, and they would be like apprentices. They would follow him, watch him, and do things the way he did. And so Jesus uses that as to describe how he relates to the father. He does what he sees the father doing, and he doesn't do anything he doesn't see the father doing. Well, that makes perfect sense to us, understanding that God is the God of the universe, and Jesus Christ is his son, and he is deity, and yet he's not acting independently of the Father. He is following the Father's lead and doing exactly what he does. And so we see this unfolded to us here in chapter 5 through 7. I'm going to read this whole section here. John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos where people would wait to be in the water and receive their healing in this water. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, wavering, awaiting rather for the moving of the waters. This was a tradition that the waters would move, have quite a bit of movement, and this would indicate that an angel was there to heal them. What was really true is they didn't realize it, that the Son of God was there uh, watching over them, and what he did was to bring healing supernaturally. It goes on, it says in verse 4, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. That was, the, that was their understanding of what was happening. And the first person stepped in after the stirring of the waters was made well from whatever disease with which he was uh, afflicted. But what was, going on, what was going on here, and we can see it plainly, is Jesus simply steps in, and heals this man. It says, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Now, how does he know? Well, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. And so he knew exactly how long he had been sick with this illness. And it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well, sir? Do you wish to get well? It reminds me of, uh, if you remember, uh, blind Bartimaeus. He was out on the side of the road, and Jesus was walking by, and so he's yelling at him. He wants him to notice him there. And so they're trying to get him to quiet down, but he didn't. He just kept on asking Jesus to come and heal him. And so when Jesus comes over, he says to him, Jesus says to him this, and this man is blind, and it's obvious he's blind. He says to Bartimaeus, he says, what would you have me do for you? Guess what he said? Give me my sight back. He wanted to be able to see, and so he asked Jesus to do that. And he does here something similar. He says to this man who's been 38 years in this sickness, and he says, do you wish to get well? That's really a good question, isn't it? Do you wish to get well? 
And uh, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Then he gets there before I can get there. And Jesus said to him, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. This, of course, was what caused all the problems. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath day that this took place. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now imagine that. You've been uh, sick for 38 years, and you're healed. The man who heals you, the very person who heals you, says, take up your pallet, the thing you lay yourself on, and carry it out and go back to your home. So they're telling him, it's not legal for you to carry that pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Now, this is interesting. This guy is not really a treasure. I mean, he's a coward in one sense. He says, well, I'm just doing what the guy said who told who healed me. They asked him, who is the man who said this to you? And, of course, he had forgotten. He forgot his name. And so he says, uh, the, the guy who said, do you pick up the pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse might happen to you. Now, we have to understand that Jesus is the judge. Remember that, that the Father said that all judgment has been handed over to the Son? He is the one who's going to carry out the final day of judgment. And so he tells him, now move away from the sin that precipitated this and put you in this situation so that something worse doesn't happen to you. You can imagine, here's the judge of all people who's telling him, be careful what you're doing. Live your life in a way that you won't succumb to this, this kind of temptation to fall into the results of the effects of the final day of judgment. So the man went away. You get this. He goes away and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He knew that they wanted to get a hold of him and punish him, and yet he tells them who he is. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. And he answered them, My father is working until now. Now remember this, this is the same context that we saw last week, that you're talking about an apprentice following his father in his steps. And he says, my father is working until now, and, my, and I myself am working. In other words, he's saying that he's working now. You have to understand that the Sabbath law said that you could not do your work, that is, the work that you normally do to make your living on the Sabbath day. And uh, Jesus is emphasizing something here that they need to understand, that is, his equality with God. Not his independence from God, but his equality with God. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because they, they thought that he was saying he was independent of God. All the more to he, kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Jesus is saying this. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. In other words, this is how he does it. Some of you know Mitch Peterson, and you know that if you've ever been around him much, he does things a certain way. He has a pattern for doing everything he does. And if you try to tell him to do something different, he'll let you know. I've spent 50 years here finding out how to do this, and I'm not going to go your way. I'm going to do it like I'm supposed to do it. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite amusing. But here Jesus sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does. These things the Son also does in like manner. 
He doesn't look to human beings. He looks to the Father. And here in this context is during a period in his life after the incarnation that he is learning to be what he is supposed to be. He's following the example of his Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you that you will marvel, that you will be amazed at, at what he is doing because he is following the, fa- the example of his Father. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he wishes. That's a stronger statement. He, he raises whoever he wishes to raise. That's because he is God. The Son is God. He is deity. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. He's the one who's going to carry out the final judgment, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, this is Jesus speaking, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What he's talking about, of course, is he's talking about trust. If you trust the Father because you see the Father's activity, you see the Father's life being manifested in Jesus Christ. When you trust him, you're, you're trusting the Father. And when you trust the Father, you're trusting the Son. And he goes on and talks about the two resurrections that are going to take place. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. But just as the Father has life in himself, even so the, he gave the Son to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. He is the chief man. He has authority over all men. That's what he's talking about. That's out of Daniel chapter 7. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of Jesus Christ and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, there's consequences, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing in my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. Now, all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven, and when they are raised from the dead, they will be raised from the dead to enjoy the fellowship of God who is alive and who will have fellowship with him. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is he saying, I'm totally submissive to the Father. Whatever the Father desires, that's what I desire. But if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies to me. I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. That is the Father. The Father testifies to the Son. And so Jesus is manifesting before everyone the fact that he is like the Father. And this began to cause some real problems, especially in the area of of, uh, keeping the Sabbath. Now, keeping the Sabbath is based upon the fact that when God got finished, when he finished the work of creation, he rested. And the word is sabbat or to, to rest, to cease his labors, he, he rested on that. And what he's talking about there is the effort that he put forth to create everything. The God of the universe created the entire universe and everything in it. And it says, you have sent to John, that is John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, I receive the testimony of my Father. He speaks to me. And he shows me by example what I am to do. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than that testimony of John. For the works which his Father has given me to accomplish, 
the very works I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So John was sent to announce the coming of Christ, but Christ was the one that was, he is the sent one. He's the one who was sent by the Father. He's the one who came to die for us. And it says, and the Father who sent me, Jesus is saying, he has testified to me, you have neither heard his voice at any time, you do not have his word abiding in you. They're not believers. And you do not believe him whom he sent. In other words, you don't believe the Father and you don't believe the Son. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, Jesus says. It's the word of God that testifies concerning Jesus Christ. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Jesus was quite uh, straightforward about his evaluation of men. And uh, you you wonder if he was worried about uh, losing popularity. It doesn't show. He doesn't care because he wants to tell them the truth. They need to hear the truth. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, that is not in the name of the Father, but is in his his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? I've mentioned this before, but this is something we need to keep in mind, is that the glory of Christ, that is when his glory is manifested, and we we see it, it is the greatest motivation for worship there is. When we see who he really is, it causes us to want to worship him, and we lift him up in praise and adoration. And he says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. They look to Moses as the savior of these people, but he says, what Moses told you was the truth. This is righteousness, and you're not doing the truth. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe? His words, and how will you believe my words? Uh, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs, and the signs are these supernatural events that point to something. And he was performing on those; he was performing these signs on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus sitting up is setting. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, a huge crowd, he says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that they may eat? Where can we go get some food, some bread for these people to eat? And, and they say to him, they say to Jesus, uh, he was saying this to test them, for he himself knew what, was, what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that is 200, that's, denarii is the, the wage for a day's labor. So imagine how much that money is. He says, uh, not even that much money, 200 denarii worth of bread, it wouldn't be sufficient for them, for everyone to receive just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000, 5,000 men plus women and children. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments uh, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments 
from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. They ate everything they wanted. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They're talking about the Messiah, the, the, uh, the Christ, the, the, the anointed one who was coming into the world, and that's exactly who he is. And then we're told that Jesus walks on the water. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, why wouldn't he want him to do that? Because God had a plan. God knew exactly when he was going to be exalted as the king of Israel. And uh, so they withdrew again to the mountain, or Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself to be alone. Now when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three to four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Here he's doing these signs, and they're pointing to certain realities. This is the king of glory, the king of Israel. And uh, they're beginning to have doubts about him. He is a, he's a blasphemer. He's making himself out to be God, is what they said. And drawing near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had entered with his disciples into the boat, but his disciples had gone away alone. In other words, he joined them. He came alongside and joined them. There came other small boats from Tiberias. These are all signs. Jesus is simply showing to them that he is God. And it's not wrong for him to say that he is equal with the Father. It is, it's wrong for him to be independent of the Father. But he's not independent of the Father. So there came these other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they had ate the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, how did you get here? And Jesus explains to them, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. See, he's perceptive. He says, you didn't seek me because you saw the signs that I did, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled and you wanted more. You wanted more of what was beneficial to you. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Now, the, the point is this, is that Jesus has provided everything that we need, but that's not why we honor him and worship him. We honor him and worship him because he is the God of the universe, who is this, the Son of God, his eternal life that was given to us by the Father. He says, therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The Father has sent the Son, and he says, he wants you to believe on him who he sent. Then they said to him, what then do you do for a sign? In other words, we want another sign so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate of the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. The real bread out of heaven is Jesus himself. And so he says, But it is my Father who has given you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they, be, they said to him, Lord, always give this bread. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. Whatever I need, that's what I'm going to receive from the Son by believing on him. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This has to do with the fact that God has chosen a people for his Son to save, and he's very clear about it throughout the Word of God. And he says, yet they do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He says in another place in the book of Romans that the only way you can hear the Lord Jesus Christ is when he is preached by a man, a human being, who is preaching the truth about Christ. And he says that's when you hear him and he moves your heart and you come to believe on him. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of you, all all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day that all those who come to him will be raised up on the last day. They will have received this eternal life that's going to last for for all eternity. As the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, that he appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once. And he's emphasizing the fact that the priests had to keep going back and going back and going back and offering the sacrifices. But he says the Son of Glory came one time to appear to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise it up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Don't you like that? Do not grumble among yourselves. He says the same thing that parents say to their children. He says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This passage tells us that the Father is in control of this entire process, and it's only through Christ that we can be saved. And there's a time when he calls you to himself, and you come and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I had two cousins, one on each side of the family. Both of them, their grandfather was a pastor, was a preacher of the gospel. But they both talked to me about the fact that they believed that the gospel was true, but they couldn't come to Christ. They just couldn't do it. They tried. What they were really talking about, we were really trying to make an effort to become Christ-like in our lives, but we just couldn't do it. Well, God gave me an opportunity to witness to both of them over a period of a few months, and both of them came to faith in Christ. And it was because, it wasn't because of me, it was because of God and God the Holy Spirit who came to them and opened their eyes to the truth of who Christ was. And they put all of their trust in him. One of them died after that, about three months, four months after that, of cancer. And the other one, I still talk to him often on the phone. He's up in the southern part of Yosemite, and he runs a food pantry. Takes him all day long to go and get the food and bring it back to the place where it's disseminated. And he says, I really wanted to give it up because it's just too much. It's too much time to take take a whole day away. But he said, I just can't do it because it is so enjoyable. It is so overwhelmingly joyful to do this. And so he continues to disseminate this food to these people because he knows this is what happened to him. He came and he ate of the bread of life and he became a new believer. And he's been following Christ ever since then. And so Jesus says, I want to read this to you in verse 56 through 58. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. In other words, he's talking about the fact that participating in God 
partaking of God the Son, will bring salvation to you. As the living Father sent me, and I and I live because of the Father, and he who eats me, that is, he who believes on me, he who trusts me, he will live because of me. That's that's what's true of every believer. We live because of Christ. We live spiritually. We are alive to God because of Christ. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers uh, and ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. There will never be an ending time when the, this time this is over. Yeah, I, w- I wanted you to notice a couple things in this text that we've seen. The first is the destructive infirmity of the man who was affected by the fall that we're told about in the first five verses. This is, what, this is the story about the sheep gate. And in the, in the temple, there was an opening there where they could go into the house of outpouring. That's what Bethesda means. It means that this was where God poured out life into that pool. And these people went in there because they believed God could heal them. And there was a whole group of sick people, various kinds of sickness and problems. And they went there and sat and waited until this, the waters were stirred. Now, it seems as though what's going on is someone put a little note in the text at somewhere along the line of the copies of this in which they were explaining why the waters were moving. It was not because it was an angel there. It was because uh, there was, a, there was a, a source for this water underneath, and every once in a while it would bubble up. And when it did, it was time for them to get into the water. And what they were doing was exercising faith in God who could heal them. And he healed them. And he healed mul- multitudes there. Many people went there, having been in sickness for many years, and they saw others who had come and put their faith in God, and they received their healing. What follows here in verses 6 through 9 is a picture of the compassionate power of Jesus Christ. He has incredible power. He cares for people. It's, it's sometimes when you're talking to somebody and they're beginning to pour out their heart to you, you wonder, wait a minute, are they just setting me up? Or does this person really have a need that I should listen to and I should be care about? Well, Jesus was always listening. He had a lot of enemies because of this. The Pharisees didn't like the fact that he would listen to people who were so flawed and so sinful. Why would he care for them? He should care for people who lived a perfect life. That's what the Jew, that's what the Pharisees believed. And so what was happening was Jesus was uh, listening to the heart. He was compassionate. And so this is what happened here. Uh, this man was, had some problems. He was the guy who wanted to tell that the reason he was carrying a pallet was because Jesus told him to. And they wanted to kill Jesus. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to show that the law stood perfect and they would kill Jesus and and get rid of him. Uh, And then you see this compassionate Christ talking in verses 6 through 9. And this is what he says in in, uh, that passage of Scripture. This is John 5, verses 6 through 9. When Jesus saw him, that is this man, the sick man, he saw him there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, that sounds like a, that's an obvious question, isn't it? That's asking a question that you already know the answer to. And he says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, in the simplest kind of way, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. You're healed. And he does. And when he does, he gets into all kinds of trouble because he's breaking the Sabbath, they think. Now, he's breaking the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law said, you're breaking the Sabbath law when on a Sabbath day, when I, on the, the seventh day, you are doing the normal kind of work you would do any other day. 
if you're if you sell tractors, you would be selling tractors on Saturday. And that's what was breaking the law. But what was happening here, these men were not breaking the law of the Pharisees. They were simply breaking this tradition that they had, that they they wanted to dictate what sin was and what it wasn't. And it's, it's kind of like that. Uh, th- this is something we can easily fall into. Uh, and so this, this intimate revelation of the power of Christ that's given us to, to us here in all this, these passages. And for example, in verses uh, 10 through 16, this is what it says. So the Jews were saying to the man who, who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permitted for you to carry your, your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is this man that said to you, pick up the pallet and walk? Because he's telling you to violate the law. Well, they were violating a law that didn't exist because that, that's not what God said. God said you could not do your normal kind of work on a Sabbath day. You're to take that day to worship the living God. So that's what they were to do under the law. I'm, I'm so grateful for the New Covenant because in the New Covenant, we can play baseball, softball, basketball, do whatever we want to do on a, on a Sunday. And because Sunday is not the Sabbath, the Sabbath is, is Saturday. But we worship on Sunday. And why is that? Why do we worship on Sunday? Anybody know? That's when he was raised from the dead. That's, that's the greatest event that's ever taken place in the life of the church is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have a grandson who told me, told my wife and me, is that if, if it's impossible, it means it's not true. And I, and I was thinking about that, and I thought, wait a minute. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is impossible. The resurrection of a human being is impossible. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15. But God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he chooses to do. And so he raised his son from the dead. And so it's not true that if it's impossible, it's untrue. It just means if it's, if it's impossible, it is, we're not depending on God to do it. Right, because God is able to do what He says He will do. Now He doesn't say He'll give you a million dollars in your bank account tomorrow. What He does say, though, is I'll meet your needs. I'll meet your needs. If you if you want to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow My Son, you will have everything you need. And uh, if somebody's sitting here thinking, "Wow, that makes me nervous." Uh, what if somebody chose to do that? Well, let me tell you, uh, God is able to do exactly what He promises. And, he, and it's wonderful to see believers obeying, the, uh, believing the promises of God and seeing God uh, fulfill his promises to them. It's a wonderful thing. And so here Jesus shows this, this compassion he has that this man had all kinds of problems. I mean, he, didn't, he, he was breaking what everybody else knew was a common law, which was to pick up his pallet and walk. And then he, then he blames Jesus for it. This man who healed me is the one who told me to do it. And then when they asked him who he is, he is forgotten. He, doesn't even, he can't even remember what his name is until Jesus comes and appears to him again. And he finally goes back and he tells the leaders. And this he goes back and tells the leaders, it was Jesus who told me to pick up the pallet and walk because he wanted the blame to be in the right place. But guess what? God had compassion on him through Jesus Christ. He actually cared. And uh, he healed him and he made him whole. Now, this compassionate power of Jesus Christ is found all over in the New Testament, especially in this section, because he's, what he's talking about is, this is why people turned against Christ. His own people turned against him. He came into his own people, and his own people did not receive him. It actually says he came into his own things, and his own people did not receive him. 
But he says, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. They believed on his name. And uh, to believe that Jesus can heal. Please don't believe that I can heal because I can't. But Jesus can heal. And if and if he tells us what we should do, for example, he tells elders in every church, every single church there is. He said, elders, what they should do is if you have someone in your congregation is sick and he comes to you or she comes to you and says, would you pray for me? I'm really having a problem. And they ask you to pray. You're to pray. You're to come. You're to put you're to put oil on their head, which points, which is a picture of anointing, anointing them, setting them apart to God. God is the only one who can can solve this problem. And so, and then to call upon the name of the Lord, and he says, the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, that's a little bit of pressure, don't you think, for elders to, to hear that if you, if you pray in faith, God will heal this person? So if he doesn't heal him, it means you didn't pray in faith, doesn't it? And that's what happens, and so it'd be better just to forget it. Let's not pray for the sick because we don't want to condemn our own selves. We don't want to put ourselves in a bad situation. And so this... this uh, doing what God says, God wants to bless his people, and he is compassionate like his son. His son shows us what compassion is, and what he's showing us is this is what the Father is like. You can go to the Father. The Bible tells us that we can enter into the Father's presence at any time we need to be in his presence, any time. You can go to the Father, and he welcomes you. He welcomes you into his presence. And so these these religious leaders who were the leaders you see, and these leaders were jealous of anybody who would get attention and not follow their prescription of how they should live. And that's what happened with Jesus. They didn't like the fact that he lived a life that was not in accord to their binding rules. But he, he lived according to the word of God and according to the will of God. Um, and, and so there was this constant battle going on. If you remember, when Jesus healed the woman, uh, well, he was in a he, after it was actually after he had healed the woman, but he he went to a, a house. A man had invited him in, and he and he comes in, and uh, he doesn't welcome him as he's supposed to. He didn't he didn't he didn't hug him. He didn't welcome him. He didn't kiss him. He didn't wash his feet because washing feet was something that would happen anytime you entered a house because they walked on dirt road and they wore sandals. And so he comes in, and this woman shows up. Now, this woman is known by the Pharisee, the guy that invited him into his house. He knows her because she's a woman of the street. She's a sinner. And so she comes in and she begins to kiss his feet and to wipe them with her hair. It's an incredible story. And Jesus Jesus actually treats her with dignity and love. And he ends up praying for her. And this, this Pharisee, he says, this couldn't be a man of God. Because a man of God would know this woman, who this woman is, and they wouldn't touch her, and they wouldn't let her touch him, and he would not be even talking to her. But he didn't understand that Jesus was a compassionate Savior. When he died on the cross, he died for you. And this is one of the most amazing things about the Bible, is it, it over and over gives this testimony that you will never meet a person in your life in this world who Christ hasn't died for. Now, there are some who believe in what's called limited atonement, which says that Christ only died for the elect. But I believe what the Bible teaches is that God died for every person you ever come in contact with, and you can tell them that Jesus died for their sins. And you can invite them to come and trust him because he will save and satisfy and make us whole. And that's exactly what he does. But we have to believe. We have to trust him. Uh, 
Here back in John 5, we read in verse 10 down through verse 16, you see the binding lust of these religious leaders. They didn't like Jesus because he was competition. And it says, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he, he who made me whole, well, was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is this man? And he said, and he tells them who it is because he just found out it's Jesus. And so it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the, the temple and, and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse would happen to you. The man went away and he told the Jews. He goes away and he tells the leadership in this synagogue that Jesus was the one who told him to pick up his pallet and walk and healed him. And here they heard this glorious news, the glorious news that he had done. He had done a, he fulfilled a sign. He healed a woman to show his authority and who he is. And yet they, that had no impression upon them at all. What they were impressed with, that there is a, there's a twist here, that because this man is carrying a pallet, that means that he's breaking the Sabbath law in their mind. Not in the mind of the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that what we are to do is we should, it even puts it in the text, that you can violate the Sabbath law if it's for compassion. In other words, if someone needs you, let's say your cow fell into the river and was going to drown, you have the right on a Sabbath day to get that, that cow out of there because God doesn't call acts of compassion work and a violation of the Sabbath. Isn't that wonderful? He's, he's, he's the kind of God that you could love because he's the kind of God who cares for people. And that's exactly what happened. And so uh, this, is, this is what took place. I want I to just emphasize one thing. Jesus' defense, his only defense in this whole thing, because they're accusing him of being a blasphemer. He's making himself out to be God. His only defense is, I do what I see the Father doing, and he is working, and I'm working because I'm following his example. He is following the, the very will of God, and th- this is w- what Jesus understood. Now, I wanted to, to remind you of something. We talked a little bit about um, Philippians chapter 2. I, wanted, I want us to look at that, if you will, Philippians chapter 2, and I want us to read from ba- verse 8. We had read last week from verse 9. But I want you to look at verse 8. This time we'll skip down a little bit. But in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man. Who was that? That was Jesus, right? So he says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He obeyed the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most horrible kind of death there could ever be in, in the world is that this that people were put to death and they were treated the way you saw Jesus being treated. In every, every kind of attempt they make to give you a picture of this, you can see it. That Jesus was willing, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him. God exalted his son because he died for you. And if that doesn't impress you, then you're, you're probably half dead. Because that's a, that's a glorious truth, that, that God would be glorified and he has a high, high desire to see his son love us and be willing to lay down his life for us. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And what name is that? Well, it's Jesus. It's not talking about a particular little name. It's talking about the fact this is the person. In the scriptures, a name is the revelation of a person. And this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's his name. It's his character. It's who he is. And he says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth. In other words, in verse 10, you have this purpose clause I mentioned before. It's a little Hena clause. It says, this is the purpose. This is why he did this. Why in the world would God highly exalt Jesus and bestow on him the name which is above every name? He says, it's because for this reason, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That's you and me. That we would bow at the name of Jesus who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. People, all people. And if you live under the earth, I don't know if anybody here who lives under the earth, but if you did, you would still be included in this group because some of people that are on the earth or under the earth or above the earth in heaven, uh, and that every tongue will confess. Do you have a tongue? Can you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father? Yes, you can. And this is what he calls us to do. So then, my beloved, he says, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation. Live it out. Live it to the full, this, this Christian life that you have, with fear and trembling. Take seriously this assignment that God has given you. He's given you the assignment to do this very, very thing, to lift him up. You know, we have a song, I think, that goes with that, that very phrase, lift him up, lift him up, lift the name of Jesus higher. That's what he's calling you to do, and he wants you to do that on a regular basis, that we ought to do this in, in the order of our life, that we are constantly, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we talked about this last week, that this is what we're confessing. This is what we're, we're saying is true. This is true. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that's something I need to do on a regular basis. We used to always open our service with uh, Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. You can say this with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Now, we are supposed to say that because it's supposed to remind us of something. It's supposed to remind us of the fact that we actually trust this God that we worship. We trust him, and we trust his son. We trust his son who saved us by his death and resurrection. And so we are convinced that he is the Lord of glory according to the the glory of the Father. The Father has made him glorious by giving him this name, the name of Jesus. And so we get to bow to that name. We get to confess that name. And we get to include it as a part of our, our daily life that we are actually willing to express that truth, that Jesus has been raised from the dead so that we can see that he is the Lord of glory, the glory that the Father has. And what we talked about last week was that this is God's priority. His priority is to lift up his son. He wants, he wants people to acknowledge who he is. The, this, the Father wants people to acknowledge who he is and uh, to the things about him. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody talk about your son. Maybe some of you have sons, and you ever had people tell you positive things about them to, to point out things that, that God has especially blessed them with. That's what he wants us to do because it's a... It's a glorious experience for fathers and parents. And our Heavenly Father, it's a glorious experience for Him. He wants us to praise the Son, and He wants us to acknowledge who He really is by our expression of faith. And so why don't we do that right now? Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the fact that we are in your family, that Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren, that He has a multitude of people in His family, and we get to be in that family. We're so grateful for it. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed our lives with the reality of who Christ is. We pray that we would continue to admonish and, and to express praise to the, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
We want to worship him. We want our lives to be characterized by worship of the Son because you are blessed every time you hear that. And we pray that we would be often coming to your, your throne and telling you the truth about your Son. He is so glorious, and we are so thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.